Hello once again, Cougar Nation. Welcome to another edition of VoiceOver with Greg and Shep. I am Greg Rubel. He is Jason Shepard. And we are joined today by Andy Katz. Andy, as you all know, is a multimedia host, writer, and reporter for NCAA.com and the NCAA's multiple college basketball platforms. He's a college basketball analyst for multiple networks and leagues, including the West Coast Conference. So we see him time and again in these parts. And he was, of course, a senior college basketball writer for ESPN from 2000 through 2017. Prior to that, he was a writer for college basketball with the Fresno Bee, the Albuquerque Journal, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Andy, thanks for taking a little bit of time with us today. Wow, you didn't leave anything out from the resume. Uh, (laughs) I would say one of the things I miss uh, about living in the East that I loved living in the West was my time going uh, to Utah. Um, And I'm hoping I can come back more often. But uh, I've got, as you guys know, I mean, from the 90s, I got great memories of uh, the Marriott Center, those great Utah BYU rivalries, uh, covering when New Mexico was really good, going into Provo. Uh, same with Fresno when they were going to BYU. Uh, and, and so when we had that game this season, which I wish I could have been at, between BYU and Gonzaga, and everyone's talking about how great the Marriott Center was. Right. I remember how great that place was, and when it's packed with 20,000 strong and one of the best home courts in the country. And it was great to see that environment again. Uh, I know it's been like that at times before, but still, that's what I remember the most from the 90s. You mentioned the Gonzaga game, and uh, that was when we were still all in the throes uh, of March Madness or impending March Madness. And, and, uh, and of course, you were part of the, uh, of the scenario in, in Las Vegas, and we're almost, we're almost two months out now from the COVID-19 cancellations and everything that's followed. If you had to kind of encapsulate uh, your reflections of these last two months, how do you do it? So first of all, guys, I mean, it's, you know, it's something we've never experienced in any of our lifetimes. Um, and it just the way it came to a screeching halt, I still find myself, and, and I actually had a conversation on Wednesday night with Gloria Navarez, the WCC commissioner, just coincidentally uh, talked to her on Wednesday night. And we hadn't talked since sitting uh, at the Orleans that night, Tuesday night, yeah. after uh, the championship games between the men, uh, men that night with Gonzaga and St. Mary's and earlier in the day with the women with uh, Portland and San Diego. And I was just thinking about how crazy it was, even though at that moment we knew things were getting a little, you know, hectic and, uh, but they got their tournament in, wasn't sure what was going to happen. Obviously 24 hours later, I ended up going to the big 10 tournament and all that had happened where that gets shut down uh, 36 hours later. Still, it's just surreal to think how we were in Vegas, great event, the Jordan Ford shot, you know, that night before against BYU from St. Mary's and just all this excitement. And then the screeching halt and clearly, obviously the last five, six weeks has been like nothing I've ever experienced and any of us have uh, in, in, you know, in, in the world, in the country, though, you know, only people old enough to remember the Spanish flu, but uh, you know, so just trying to get through it. Uh, I'm very, optimistic and hopeful that we're going to still have our normal season uh, beginning next season. Uh, unequivocally, I still believe that we will have an NCAA tournament next year uh, and a college football playoff. Uh, you know, when it happens, I don't know, but um, I know that all the powers that be are making sure that it will happen. Uh, things just may get shifted in the schedule. That's the worst case scenario if things were to get to move. And one thing, if I could just jump ahead for one second, I will say this to all your viewers that, what I've been told is the worst case scenario is we would push the NCAA tournament 
and everything in front of that a month. That would be the worst case scenario if we don't start on time. Remember the final four is in Indianapolis next season. Uh, you get the Indy 500, which usually takes up two weekends. So you really would have to be done by probably May 8th, somewhere around then. Uh, but that's the big debate. You know, the contingency plans, how much of the season do we get in? If we don't start on time, you got to have some non-conference games. Uh, all these things are floating around. Hopefully it doesn't have to happen. But I firmly believe we will have a season of some form and a tournament. Well, that's certainly good news and obviously something that uh, the college basketball fans uh, are very excited to hear. One of the interesting things about this whole situation, Andy, is even though we've all been dealing with it for a couple of months, we're all still being educated on exactly what it all entails. And you've been hosting the NCAA Social Series on COVID-19 related issues. How much has that helped you personally in terms of your own education on this whole situation? Tremendously. I've loved doing it. Um, We've had various doctors from Emory, from Johns Hopkins, uh, psychiatrists from Wisconsin because of the mental health aspect, student athletes, uh, Dr. Brian Hainline, who's the chief medical officer we've had on uh, every week. Uh, I've got a, a self-interest here because my daughter is going to Northwestern in the fall. And uh, so, you know, I, I want her to start on time. And, I mean, I know her first quarter is not going to be normal, uh, but I, I want her to be on campus, experience that with her peers. It's something she'll never forget. Um, but I'm hopeful that they'll be able to be on campus in some form. And look, all our lives are connected to college athletics, those of us here on this Zoom call. Um, so we need it to happen. We want it to happen safely. But, um, you know, we've got to get the thing that, that there's, there's obviously a lot of thresholds here. We've got to get students on campus first. Uh, college athletics is much different than the pros. I'm still skeptical that these bubbles can exist for – NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. But for college athletics, there has to be student athletes. There has to be students on campus to have student athletes. We're not going to see just football players or just, you know, soccer or what have you. So we've got to get students on first. And then if you can have, you know, forms of social distancing uh, on campus, which I think you can spread out students if you need to in the dorms, staggered dining halls. Big lecture halls maybe are online. Smaller group classes certainly can be, you know, together. This big, I'm not a doctor, but this is what they're telling me that I believe in, in that sense, it all can be accomplished. So how do you get from that point to actually competing and practicing? Because you can't have social distancing on the football field and, uh, you know, on the soccer pitch and all that. So the transition to that has to be testing and tracing, which I'm convinced based on what I'm hearing is we're going to see universities in mass purchasing their own testing uh, and, and doing that to their students, to their student athletes for a comfort level and their faculty and their coaching and all the peripheral people um, and, you know, having a plan in place. What happens if someone tests positive? How many people does that have to sit down for X amount of time? I'm hoping obviously, and everyone else is that by that point, you know, we'll have more ways to treat it maybe not a vaccine, obviously, but some ways to treat it so that it would mitigate even the quarantine time. Uh, and, and certainly the population that we're talking about, athletes, you know, being in great shape, that could certainly help mitigate, you know, any, uh, um, um, uh, you know, symptoms that you would have. So, you know, there's a lot of positive developments happening. I think it'll change dramatically between, you know, the beginning of May as we're approaching to even the summer. And that's why I'm hoping and you know, that no decisions are going to be made 
in the early spring. I think you could go until July before you make any final decisions about fall sports. Uh, you know, probably around July 1st is when universities are going to have to make their decisions about whether or not students are on campus. But fall sports, I think you could wait till that point as well and then adjust accordingly. Yeah, it's right there. So it's testing, it's tracing, it's it's treatment, and then the other T would be timetables. And you've you've heard from enough medical experts at this point to have a sense of of what may or may not be possible relative to the sports that start in the summer. Is your sense that 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 an August rollout is still possible for the sports that have to get going around that time? Uh, I'm a little skeptical about August. Um, you know, I think the this just based on all my conversations i think the best case scenario is a delayed start um because the football oversight committee is pretty adamant about wanting four to six weeks and so let's assume that you know they're going to say okay you can be on campus by mid-august or even late august then that still pushes um you know your at least football into early october Mm -hmm. um you know other sports uh, you know they're going to have to be faced with a little bit of a dilemma in that football because of the health and safety aspect. And there's a lot of talk about the muscular skeletal injuries that they do not want to have suddenly have happen. And obviously there's, you know, there's concussion protocol, all these kinds of things with football that's on another level, but a sport like soccer, for example, or field hockey, uh, you know, that take place in the fall, they may have to say, okay, what is a legitimate amount of time that we need that minimum amount of time to get ready for a season? Obviously, I know you, you, know, you would want at least a month to train and get in shape and all that, but they may be pressed to say, okay, to get our season in, what's our minimum? Uh, and those sports may be faced with that dilemma if they want to play then. Because what these universities don't want to have happen, but it could, is if everything gets pushed to the spring semester. Um, because if that happens, you've got facility issues um, on all these campuses. You know, obviously the best ones in terms of the, I guess, the, the, the richest, if you will, in terms of facility rich, you know, may have a separate field for every sport. But that's not the case in most schools uh, where a field hockey team may share with a lacrosse field or in the same with soccer and, and lacrosse. Um, and so you'd have a lot of issues there. Volleyball, big uh, sport, you know, at, at BYU, um, very popular sport, both men and women, highly successful championship level. Okay, if you push that to the spring, you've got facility issues potentially with men's and women's basketball. If you also have wrestling, what do you do with that? You know, a lot of that is shared facilities. And so you throw all these sports together, and that's going to be a problem. You know, some obviously might have a volleyball designated area, but not all do. And so there's a myriad of problems that, that could develop. Yeah. And the last thing I, that on this whole thing, and there are more, but just, I don't want to you know, jump ahead of your topics. But the other problem that could happen that really relates to BYU as well is we are going to see different states come online, if you will. I don't mean online for school, but online to be ready to go at different times. And that really could happen out West as it relates to the WCC and the Pac-12. You know, all indications are you guys are there in Utah, that Utah will be better off than some other states, Uh, certainly maybe California. Um, So what happens if BYU and Utah and Arizona and Arizona State and Washington State and Gonzaga and that part of Washington are all ready to go. Our students are on campus because 
their universities can make that decision in accordance you know, with their state government. Um, but let's say California's not, or Seattle's not where Washington is. Um, so what do you do? You know, how do you run your conference if that happens? I think it's a big problem yeah. in the fall. In the spring, I think what could happen is if some schools still are not on campus, and there may be some that choose to go online the whole year, then you're going to have to leave them behind. And that is what I've heard that it, it's not the NCAA's thinking, but it will have to be for this season. You don't want to go there, but there are going to be dates that if we're ready to start our sport on this date and the majority are ready, then we're going. And if UCLA soccer, which is a you know, big-time program, isn't ready to go, and maybe they're not ready to go until December or January, and they miss out, then they miss out. Um, you know, those are things that are going to have to, to be discussed, and I think they yeah. need to be discussed here in the mid to late spring, certainly before we get to the fall. All right, Andy, let's focus on you a little bit. As Greg mentioned when we brought you on, you've had a lot of varying experiences in a lot of different places throughout your career, but you started out in the print media. So let's go back in the, the Wayback Machine as a student at Wisconsin. Take us through getting that first job in Milwaukee and, and really how your career started. Um, I, I was very fortunate. You know, I talked to a lot of journalism students today, uh, and my path just doesn't exist right now. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities like, you know, for example, what you guys do is phenomenal. Like I love BYU TV. I think your, your, your sports end is great. And there are opportunities like that. And other universities are, are trying and other networks. That's like sort of a new path. You know, for me at, in the nineties, it was newspapers. And so I was a student at Wisconsin. Um, I was very fortunate because my senior year, there'd always been someone had gone from the student newspaper uh, to maybe the local paper, Madison, to the Milwaukee Journal as sort of a stepping stone. We'd had great success of our sports editors doing that. And I was next in line, and I got that gig where you were the backup. That was sort of a cheap way for Milwaukee to do this, but they <laughs> used the student backup to their, uh, you know, their, their full-time beat writer for basketball and football that was stationed in Madison. And so I would do the backup work for the, the pro, if you will, and, you know, was getting bylines. And then uh, I just coincidentally, they say, hey, you know, the hockey team's really good. So they gave me the hockey team as my own beat. And they ended up winning the national championship. And they had never done this where they sent the student reporter, because I was still technically in school, uh, to cover the team in the tournament, flew to Detroit. They won the national championship. They had a ton of NHL players on. And it was interesting because I was actually promised, this is how your career can go in different directions. Um, at the time, there was all this talk that the Milwaukee Admirals, which is still a minor league team yep. to this day, was going to be an NHL franchise. And I was told, hey, if this happens and there was a vote, you'll be the beat writer. And so I would have stayed in Milwaukee um, and would have maybe been an NHL guy <laughs> and, uh, uh, because I'd sort of fallen into it, even though my passion was basketball and, uh, you know, I covered the the Big Ten Wisconsin basketball team, obviously, during my, my time as a student. But I was like, okay, this could be a great first job, covered an NHL team, beat writer. But at the time, the Chicago Blackhawks had a really cheap ownership group, and they, were, they used their whole, you know, the, the geography to block it, to, let, to not have a team that was so close in proximity uh, to Chicago. And so they blocked the expansion of Milwaukee into the NHL, 
because uh, it was right around the time the Bradley Center, you know, had just come on. And so they had this new facility where the Bucks were playing, uh, but it never happened. And so then I, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And um, this job came open in New Mexico. Uh, you know, think about it. You've got a Northeast kid uh, who went to school in Wisconsin. My mother's family's from Chicago. So that was my world, New England and, and, and the Midwest. And so I'd never been uh, to, you know, that, that part of the country, the Southwest, went for an interview and ultimately got the job. And, uh, you know, that clearly just shaped my life. Ultimately met my wife in Albuquerque. Her family still lives there. And so we still go out West, obviously. Um, but, uh, you, you know, it's funny how all these things work out, but, you know, I love my, the, the whack in the nineties was awesome. Yeah. You know, when you think about all the different coaches we had teams that we were covering, uh, and the different variations of the whack at the time. Uh, but you know, a, a story that you may or may not know, uh, is that in 95, okay, before I went to Fresno, I actually, was a finalist and thought I was getting the job at the Desiree News. Um, and this is a true story. It was over July 4th weekend. I interviewed for the job and it was to cover BYU and the WAC uh, because obviously they knew me from covering uh, it in New Mexico. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was done. We went at the time, what we did was, you know, we went to the bookstore and got the Salt Lake Tribune. My wife and I, we had just been married. And we were looking at apartments in Salt Lake. We, you know, I loved going skiing there. I loved the, the just the, the Wasatch, everything about it, Provo, all that. Ready to do it. We were going to, we were definitely going to take the job and do it. And then I get a call on that Monday after July 4th, that weekend, that they decided to promote from within. Uh, and then must have been maybe a month later that, you know, because Tark had just gotten to Fresno, that then I got the call on Fresno. And then ultimately I went to Fresno. Uh, coincidentally, me and actually Adrian Wojnarowski came at the same time uh, and both of us went there. But just so crazy how life could have been different because I, I would have taken the, the BYU job um, because I wanted something different. We wanted something different. We just got married. We said, hey, you know what? Uh, she, was from the, she is from the West. And hey, let's move to Utah. So it's just crazy how all these things could have happened. So from Albuquerque to Fresno, Fresno B for you. And I think you were at you were in Fresno at a time when Steve Cleveland, yes, who was the Fresno City College JUCO yes. coach, ended up coming to BYU, right? Yes, that's all true. Um, knew Steve very well uh, because Fresno City was a big deal at the time in Fresno. Yeah, uh, Fresno State and Fresno City. So Fresno City was great in the junior college. This was an era when junior college basketball out west and in California was a really big deal. Rafer Alston played for him. Uh, Skip to Malou, big New York City playground legend who ultimately goes to Fresno City and then Fresno State and then the NBA. And so, um, yeah, so I knew Steve well. And then, you know, covered him when he went to BYU with Keith Schroyer, who was another uh, yep. California JUCO coach, uh, ultimately went to Wyoming. And now I'm drawing a blank where Heath is now. Um, uh, went Had another stint, I think, at BYU. Then went, uh, you know, for another head coaching gig. He's, a, he's at McNeese State now as a head That's coach. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so – yeah, so there was all those ties, you know, as well. So you've touched on a couple of times covering BYU in the early 90s. Was, was that the first time that you really, certainly on that level, was that the first time that you really became acquainted with BYU athletics? T take us back to that time and your early impressions of BYU. 
Well, I mean, uh, well, let me first go back that I was, you know, a college and sports fan growing up in the 80s. So I grew up in the 80s. And so I remember, I mean, I watched, you know, all those great BYU football teams. Um, also, keep in mind, I grew up in Boston. And uh, so I knew all about Danny Ainge. And, uh, and you know, and ultimately, and it's great, I've become friends with him, obviously, through the Celtics. And uh, he's great. Love Danny every time I see him and talk to him. Um, so I at least had that connection and knew about um, – you know, BYU and watch BYU. Uh, and also, you know, uh, my probably my earliest memory, I may be dating myself, but my earliest memory of ever watching a Final Four was Magic Bird, which of course was at the Huntsman Center in Salt Lake. So there's those ties. Um, but my impressions were always uh, just wonderful about it. I mean, it, it always was my favorite trip. You, the thing about those trips we had in, in the WAC in those days, Never a fan of El Paso, not to offend anyone on this, but, um, you know, the Wyoming Colorado State trip was always weather-related. Uh, shockingly, there was one year where the WAC tournament was in Laramie, and we were in Laramie for almost a week. Uh, so, you know, that was um, – and Sandy, I, I mean, I would say this. My favorite trip then, when we used to be able to go everywhere in newspapers, was the San Diego-Hawaii swing. I mean, I went to Hawaii 14 times – uh, when I was working uh, in Albuquerque and Fresno. And uh, so I love that swing. And then the Utah swing was great after that because even though I grew up in New England, my family weren't skiers, so I never really went skiing. So I actually learned how to ski in Utah. Yeah. Um, you know, we go a little bit in New Mexico, but I'd always go in, in Utah. And this was also an era where those games were at, a lot of times the games I covered were at like, you know, nine or 10 o'clock at night on those big Mondays or whatever the, the schedule was at Utah or BYU. And, you know, now we're always working during the day, vlogs, videos, everything we're doing. Then I was a newspaper guy. I didn't have to do anything until the game. And so I would literally go skiing every, like, every day game or every game day, I should say. And I went to Alta, Solitude, you know, Park City, Sundance, all those places. And so, uh, you know, I loved it. And then, you know, of course, I cannot go without saying that um, you know, I ended up having a wonderful friendship with Rick and, you know, he really helped my career because he introduced me to a lot of different people. And I got, cannot tell you how many times, A, I would just talk with Majerus, you know, late at night, talking basketball, life, all these kinds of things. And there were so many times we'd have these late night meals, you know, in Salt Lake uh, at his usual spots. Um, and, you know, like, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, I was not close with Roger. Um, he was kind of hard to get close to, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, and I would say since then I've been actually, you know, I, I feel like really close with all the BYU coaches. Uh, but those Majerus Reed rivalries were great. Uh, and it just were great. I think for the sport, for the state, for the city and the whole area. But, um, I mean, like to me, Dave Rose is one of my closest friends in the business. Um, I love Dave and Cheryl, great people. And, um, you know, I'll never forget when I was with them, he invited me out to, to share with him when we were waiting to see if he'd get the good news on his first scan when he was going through cancer. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, no, I just, I only have good memories of the people. Uh, Tom Olmo, the athletic director is awesome. Uh, and my experiences there have always been wonderful. I'll give you a little crazy nugget that I remember <laughs> that 
uh, I, I, I don't, this is stuck in my, I remember there was an era and I don't know if they still do this. I don't think so. I think we would have heard about this. There was a time in the nineties when the visiting teams would get like toiletry kicks, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the locker room, right? which <laughs> doesn't happen anywhere else. And, and I always remember like other players would be like, oh, you know, almost like when you go first class, you know, international and you get the little, you know, Delta little toiletry kit yeah. and then they would be in the locker room and everything was done at such a, you know, at such a first class level. So, so Cougar hoops, you mentioned Roger, it goes from Roger to, to Steve Cleveland to Dave Rose to now Mark Pope. Uh, your thoughts on what BYU has been able to, to do in the way of college hoops continuity over 20 plus years, let's say. So, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think also it's a great Testament. I mean, look, there's no secret, um, you know, that you would ideally have a coach who is, you know, practicing the faith uh, and obviously makes sense uh, with an LDS school. Um, but I always remember, like, when openings came up, oh, the pool's so small, who are you going to get? And I think what we've seen, first of all, is the pool isn't so small, um, you know, that the pool is larger than we think. The recruiting base is largely thinking, although in recruiting, it doesn't have to be that way and hasn't, and that's fine. Um, but in the coaching ranks, you know, there's wonderful people out there. There's great, you know, candidates and they've been, they've, they've made the right calls. Um, you know, I, I love the way Dave has, and Cheryl, and I sat with them at the WCC, that the way that has been handled, I think is a model for all schools. And I'll give you an example that I think is the worst. Okay. So like St. Joseph's, Phil Martelli poured his life and soul into that school, took them to an elite eight, um, really was the the face of St. Joe's. New AD comes in, things obviously had gone down with them and they just blow them out, write this like one page press release after 24 years. And now there's like no relationship. Okay. Zero. And that hurts, you know, former players and all that. And it's just such the wrong way to do it. Clearly, you know, not just with his health issues, and they'd reached a little bit of a plateau. They had great, a great run and had, you know, consistent success. Obviously wanted more in the WCC. But Dave also knew maybe the timing was not there anymore. I mean, maybe that they need a new voice. And he recognized it. The way he exited was, I thought, graceful, respectful, and they've treated him well. And now he's right there with the program and embraced. And Mark has done a phenomenal job of making sure that connection is there. They still live there. All their children and grandchildren are in, in the area. And so I think that, uh, you know, the way that the administration is handled, the way the current staff is allowed for a seamless transition. And, and you know, Mark is, you know, he's great, great personality. Um, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the addition of someone like Matt Harms is another example of, of how BYU is attractive regardless of your faith or anything like that because, you know, it's a great place to be. And, you know, the way you play, the, the support, I mean, just what has happened the last couple of years and especially this past season, and you see, you know, the atmosphere, how could you not want to be in that environment? I mean, and say that it's not one of the better environments to play in and be a part of. And so I think there's a lot of positive aspects to this. Um, and, you know, it's just a sh- such a shame of what happened this season because I'm a firm believer in the what-if game 
And I, I really thought that BYU, uh, you know, my two sleeper teams were BYU and Creighton. I really believe that they were going to go on a run and possibly be Final Four teams in the right bracket because of the way they played, the way they scored. Yoli was like on fresh legs because he'd missed so much time with the suspension and the injuries. Um, you know, we'll never know. But, uh, you know, I think that would have even helped the brand even more going forward. And that's a perfect segue, Andy, into what I wanted to ask you next, because while some may have been somewhat surprised at the level of success that BYU basketball had last year, you were not one of them. I remember before the season even started, you were saying you thought this was an NCAA tournament team. What made you believe before the season even started this, that the success that we saw was possible? Well, I mean, I talked to Dave and Mark and also other coaches in the league. And, and, but I'm also a firm believer in today's modern college basketball, which is if you're old and stay old, you got a great shot. And if you can score uh, and BYU could do all of that and had all that. Now I didn't know that Yoli Childs was going to be suspended for the first nine games, but even the way they managed that, you know, you know, I wouldn't say they got lucky, but getting that win at Houston really changed. I think the narrative for their season, um, you know, the thing that had been sort of the bugaboo for, Dave in the first few seasons in the WCC is, you know, they actually had good success at Gonzaga, uh, snapped their long uh, winning streak there. But then, you know, it just, they would lose some of those games that you'd be like, you know, uh, to the teams at the bottom that you just can't do. I think one year at, at USD, um, you know, those are the things that I think it prevented them from making that next, you know, step or being a, you know, off the bubble or, you know, if they got in, staying out of Dayton. Um, so, you know, there were, uh, there were all the indicators, I thought, that for them to have the kind of season that they did. Andy, from ESPN to the NCAA, how do you view the last, uh, say, 20 years of your, uh, of, of your career, how it's turned out? Well, I've been very fortunate, resourceful, and my advice to everyone out there is you have to change. And I think a lot of people in our profession, certainly in newspapers, were against it. I mean, um, I embraced the digital age. Uh, and, you know, I've been doing sort of one man band stuff uh, for years now. Uh, you know, I'll go back to one of the things I think was a turning point at ESPN for me, when, um, uh, when we really started doing much more digital interviews, I was covered, I was doing sideline for a game between Cincinnati and UConn. And Mick Cronin had gotten tossed by uh, Hightower. Or no, excuse me, uh, Teddy Valentine. And um, so he's out and game's over. They're on to the next game. Uh, but I'm like, hey, we got to hear from Mick Cronin. He got, you know, mouth to mouth with, with Valentine. And so I literally just used my phone by the locker room to get a post game with him. And he went off and all that. And we ended up renting that on SportsCenter. And at the time, the digital editor ESPN, um, he caught a photo or he snapped a photo off of the, the, the screenshot because you can see while in the background, as I'm interviewing Mick on my cell phone, um, you can see behind me the game camera guy walking back to the truck who's we were back by the locker room area where the truck was carrying like, you know, whatever, $60,000 camera. And so, you know, to, to him, that was a great way to show, look, you know, the traditional game crew, they're done. There's still content to gather, and we're going to get it how we're going to get it. And, you know, it was a little crude at the time. Audio wasn't great. 
but we got it. And um, it's improved so much. Um, my timing, you know, look, you know, everyone loves to say everything works out for a reason. Uh, I didn't wish this to happen to me, you know, in the layoffs that happened in 2017. I know I did nothing wrong or anything like that, but, um, you know, everything has worked out wonderfully well. Uh, you know, putting all sort of my jigsaw puzzle together with the NCAA.com, March Madness, uh, them just raising their digital platform and being able to cover the whole country like this, you know, Fox Sports and Big Ten Network, um, working with the WCC and the Pac-12, allowing me to do all these different things. I do a couple little side things with some other leagues, uh, but, you know, I'm doing as well, if not better than before, more flexibility, seeing more of the country um, at a time when ESPN has rolled back its digital platforms. Uh, you know, they're just not doing what I'm doing now for March Madness and the other entities that we were doing five years ago, they kind of stopped doing it. And now uh, with Skype and now Zoom that we've <laughs> all fallen into during the pandemic, uh, just to, you know, various ways that I'm recording podcasts. Uh, I have this, I'm talking to you now in this home studio that Turner March Madness built for me uh, for you know, it's coincidentally, they put this in my home in January, sort of a just in case. And now I'm using it like nonstop yeah. over the last five weeks. And as you guys know, in this business, lights and angles are everything and the lighting's great here. So that's helped uh, tremendously in, in pulling all this off during this time. Andy, the NCAA has had a couple of news items recently. One, it appears that players are moving towards the ability to be able to be compensated for their name and likeness. And then also, the one-year waiver does not look like it's going to be passed through. Just your overall thoughts on those two things and how they impact uh, NCAA you know, athletics. Uh, the NIL issue, um, everything was trending that way. You know, Their hand was forced, obviously, as legislation in various states around the country. Um, so we knew that was going to happen. We'll see how it all actually ultimately shakes out. There will be guardrails, you know, navigating the booster aspect can't be recruiting and inducement, but once you're there, um, uh, will be allowed no cap on what you could earn. Um, you can't contradict your sponsorship with your school. So, uh, you know, if you were a Nike school, you suddenly couldn't do an, could not do an Adidas ad, uh, although you probably wouldn't be you know, the way it works now at the Nike school, if you were a straight Adidas person. Uh, but, you know, the thing to me, and my kids will tell me this too, that where I think the new frontier, if you will, where the money can be made is in social media. Um, you know, TikTok, Twitter, uh, Instagram. You know, I think these athletes will make more money that way than a traditional car dealer ad or something like that. Because what we're going to see is, you know, take, uh, you know, Gonzaga and BYU, okay, Spokane and Provo, where there could be, um, you know, plenty of opportunities for uh, potential deals. But in the Bay Area, in LA, college sports is, just doesn't register. I mean, if you were to go down, you know, name someone in UCLA, USC, or Cal Stanford or St. Mary's or what have you, very difficult. Pro athletes have a hard time finding that space. So maybe those athletes, you know, could benefit through the social media where it doesn't matter where you are um, and you're not maybe making as much locally. So it had to happen. How it's managed will be a whole nother issue. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't corrupt the sport. Hopefully it helps it more, uh, you know, but, but we were heading in this direction. 
As for the transfer, I do think it ultimately will happen for the fall of 21-22, the one-time waiver, uh, because the NCAA needs to get out of the business of judging and being the, you know, judge and jury of whether or not your grandmother or your your aunt is sick um, to get a waiver. But I just didn't think that was going to happen right away amid this pandemic. Uh, Universities are cutting costs, trying to just get on, you know, in any way they can. Um, So, you know, I I just didn't see that that would happen at this juncture. Um, You know, but I I think it will happen. You know, good news for BYU with Matt Harms, he's a grad transfer. That's unaffected, just so everyone knows. That's unaffected with this. You've graduated. You can transfer right away and play. This is all about transfers that just want to transfer from one four-year institution to the other and try to play right away at least one time uh, without having to sit out. Andy, last thing for you, uh, personal note. Uh, we know you're working from home. Are you running from home? We know you're a runner. Uh, half marathons, marathons, big part of your life in the last decade or so. How's that coming? Uh, going well. I've already, though, unfortunately, had two races canceled yep. um, that I was supposed to do. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like, when I lived out west, I was not a runner in that part of my life. But now uh, I have been. And, uh, yes, we've just had kind of a dreary spring so far. But hopefully things will pick up in that regard. But, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I need to be better about running an altitude out there. That's for sure. By the way, one of the best walk hikes that I remember doing also, uh, one of that I think that might have been that time when I was out there with Dave and Cheryl, was that Provo Canyon. Yeah. Uh, obviously, in spring, you know, late spring, would love to be out there and, uh, you know, going down there as well. It is beautiful. Well, uh, no games are being played anywhere by anyone, but yet you are among the busiest guys in the business and uh, no one does it better. Andy, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule being with us today on VoiceOver. All right. Thanks, guys. Be safe out there. And hopefully uh, we'll be watching BYU TV in the fall with sports actually happening. You can find every episode of VoiceOver with Greg and Shep on the BYU TV Sports YouTube page. Plus, you can listen to the audio version by subscribing to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel or by going to the show page on BYURadio.org. Don't forget, for even more Cougar Sports content live or on demand, make sure to download the BYU TV and BYU Radio apps. Thanks once again to our guest, Andy Katz. We'll talk to you next time. Go Cougs.